Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from Madison, Wisconsin. It's where I went to school, learned, and then practiced journalism, so I've returned to speak to a few journalists and historians. First, David Marinus, one of the great writers of our times, and a Madison native. He's the author of numerous nonfiction gems, from a biography of Vince Lombardi to his most recent book on Jim Thorpe. Marinus has chronicled American history like no other. Then I'll sit down with Madison resident and legendary White House photographer Pete Souza, whom I first met when he was President Reagan's photographer, and then he came back as President Obama's photographer. And then, just to put some real, not to mention important, perspective on Wisconsin, a conversation with Christian Overland, who runs the Wisconsin Historical Society. First up, David Marinus. Before I ever met David Marinus, I met his father, Elliot, the legendary editor of the Capital Times newspaper in Madison. And then came David's books. One of my favorites, They Marched in Sunlight. It told the story of the Vietnam War, abroad and the war at home, through the eyes of a group of Wisconsin soldiers. He may be one of the longest-serving writers and reporters at the Washington Post, but his home is still Madison. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. First, let me introduce you, David Marinus. Yes, great to be with you, Peter. And of course, my favorite book that you've ever done, They Marched Into Sunlight. Which is, half of it is about the University of Wisconsin protests in the 1960s, and the other half is a battle taking place in Vietnam simultaneously. And of course, you and I were here at the same time. You were a Madison native. I grew up a block from this stadium, spent my childhood sneaking into this stadium, was on the field during the 1962 games when they were going to the Rose Bowl. Uh, My first job was being the messenger boy for the Associated Press photographers on this field. And what's really interesting to me now is this is called the Evu Communication Center. William T. Evu was the owner and publisher of the Capital Times, which brought our family to Madison. And of course, I knew your dad very well. Mr. Marinus, Elliot Marinus. Yes, Elliot Marinus got here as a reporter in 1957 and ended as the uh, executive editor of the Cap Times. When I tell people about my career, I say that I owe my entire career to this school and to this city because I was back here during the same time you were in terms of all the anti-war protests. It was the the center point of all the media. Uh, I got hired as as the youngest correspondent in the history of Newsweek uh, when I was like 19 and still going to school here. So I always come back. It's nice to see that uh, we have a better football team this year than we've had in previous years. But the reason why you come back is not for that. It's to remind you of of where you came from and why you're here. Well, it's even deeper for for, for me and my family. Uh, I feel that that the Capital Times in Madison saved our family. My father um, was a leftist in the 1930s and 40s and was hounded during the McCarthy era, and nobody would hire him for five years, and the Capital Times did, and really saved our family. And it was sort of the progressive atmosphere here that changed everything for us. So I feel very deeply about that, as well as everything else about this city. And of course, you've been to the Washington Post since, what, 1977? Yeah, that's 46 years now, which is really hard to believe. I so, survived. They so they haven't found out? Well, I survived there by never being there, basically. I've got a, a racket going. <laughs> but whenever they need me, I'm there. What is it about Madison? What is it about Madison that, that people need to know? Well, I mean, geographically, it starts with the lakes, right? I mean, what other city has three lakes right in the city? Um, sort of mentally and emotionally, it's an openness, an honesty, a friendliness, and a progressive nature that, that keeps uh, me attracted to this place. I remember when I was a freshman and a sophomore here, we had the National Guard surrounding the state capitol many days. Uh, anti-war riots, Monday through yeah. Friday, tear gas in the streets all the time. And yet on Saturdays, there were no riots because they'd still find a way to fill 77,000 seats here at the stadium, and the team couldn't even win. But no, I mean, it was the Johnny Cota era, I as I recall. We never won anything. And the, big, the biggest cheer was uh, either block that kick after the other team had scored or something um, that I can't say on the air, I guess. But Although I will <laughs> tell you an interesting story that happened here. 
Uh, we were losing, of course, in the fourth quarter. 77,000 people here at the stadium. The National Guard was surrounding the state capitol with their armored personnel vehicles and everything short of tanks. But they weren't expecting anything to happen because it was a football Saturday. Wisconsin was losing about six minutes to go in the fourth quarter. We had no chance of winning. And somehow the other team fumbled. We fa- fell on it in the end zone. We got another score. We win. And all of a sudden, 77,000 people come pouring out of the stadium and they're starting marching up State Street to the Capitol. They're singing, we're number one. But the National Guard doesn't know this. And, and they, they, they look down the street and they go, okay, fix bayonets, get ready to, to fire the tear gas grenades. And then all of a sudden, the colonel from the National Guard looks at it through his binoculars. And who's leading the march up State Street? Elroy Hirsch. No, Bucky Badger. Oh, well, Elroy Hirsch was dancing on top of the grotto that day. I remember I that. And he said, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with the war, stand down. And, and of course, we were yelling, we're number one. We were nowhere near number one. Never were and hadn't been. It was no, we were number one, meaning we won one game finally. That was, yeah, we won one. That was it. <laughs> but when you think of, of our contemporaries who were here when we were and, and where they went in journalism, where they went in broadcasting, I mean, how many Pulitzer Prizes, how many Emmy Awards, how many Academy Awards? I mean, it was quite a class. Yeah, I mean, I don't consider myself part of that group exactly but you're absolutely right i do i mean a lot of great journalists and so many went out to hollywood you know including the zucker brothers and lowell bergman was a great investigative reporter walt bogdanich a lot of them and and andrew bergman too yes that's right the the writer of blazing saddles people forget (laughs) that and and you know who wrote the who wrote it with him most people don't remember i have no idea richard pryor well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> Just an amazing, an amazing yes. movie that somehow got made. Yes. That's, uh, that somehow got made. When your friends come to visit you in Madison for the first time, what's the biggest surprise to them? Oh, well, you know, they don't even know where Wisconsin is, right? They call it Wisconsin. You know, I mean, from people from New York and uh, Washington. And they think it's, you know, a bunch of hicks and it's all cheese. Uh, there is a lot of cheese, and you know I do take them to the farmers market on Saturdays. Well, it is the best farmers market in America. <laughs> yeah, it's all the way around the square, and um, so you can get the cheese curds there. But there's so much more to it than that stereotype. It is, but the point is, you get you can breathe here, you can yeah. you can you can get out and 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 see. I hate to say it, you see America. For better or worse. <laughs> I mean, going through the crowd here today at a football game is not necessarily the best of humanity, but but you're absolutely right. I mean, I love hey, this we're part place. of that crowd. Yes, we are. Um, but, you know, I mean, I say that my favorite place in the whole world is sitting on the terrace at the Memorial Union on a nice fall or summer day. You know, I still go back there on Lake Mendota. The chairs are still the same. Yep. Uh, you sit there. They used to have terrible beer because of a, stu- of a stupid state law. It had to only be 3.2% alcohol. But forgetting that, their, their signature dish, it's still there. Fudge bottom pie. You can uh, still get that fudge bottom yeah, pie. Yeah, which was invented by Carson Gully, a great uh, black... Uh, a chef who was not treated that well in Madison, actually. I mean, you know, for all of Madison's wonders, uh, its history on race and race relations is not the greatest because there weren't enough African-Americans here to, for people to figure out how to live together. And now? Now it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, this, this university uh, still struggles getting enough African-American students and you have a legislature that doesn't want them, you know, doesn't like diversity and equity and inclusion. And so you have this 
pressures from both sides about all that issue. But other than that, I mean, there's so many wonderful things about this this university. And the best part of it is, well, two things. The Wisconsin idea, which meant taking the, the brilliance of the university and bringing it to the whole state. And the other is the notion of sifting and winnowing in the search for truth. And I have used that motto as sort of a foundation for everything I try to do in my journalism career. And so much of your journalism career involves research. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I talk about what I call the four legs of the table for every book I write. And the first leg is to go there, wherever there is. That actually, for that book on the, on the protest at the University of Wisconsin, brought me back here. I'm, we moved back here, my wife and I. And that, we loved that year so much that we bought a house here and come back every summer. But it started with that. But that also meant moving to Green Bay, turning to Linda, after my wife, after the 1996 election and uttering the immortal loving words, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? Because I was doing a book about Vince Lombardi and I had to know what it was like wait, to wait, live through the ice bowl. Wait, you know what? You got to tell everybody the title of that book. When Pride Still Mattered. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, can be taken two ways. It actually, I took it, I don't know if you know this, but Richard Ford, the novelist, um, in his, one of his books, Independence Day, was driving, the character is driving through New Jersey and stops at the Vince Lombardi rest stop and in parentheses Ford put when pride still mattered. So I wrote Ford and said, I'm writing a book on Vince Lombardi. That's the title of my book, if it's okay with you. And it was okay with him. It was okay, yes. I mean, you've done Vince Lombardi. You did Roberto Clemente. All fascinating stories that were essentially untold. There were, there were the myths associated and the legends, but this is the truth. Why Jim Thorpe? Well, actually, I considered the third part of a trilogy of sports figures who transcend sports. So for Lombardi, it was not just this great football coach, but a chance to write about the mythology of competition and success in American life, what it takes and what it costs. For Clemente, it was not just a beautiful ball player, but that rare athlete who truly was heroic, dying, trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after an earthquake. And for Thorpe, not just arguably the greatest athlete in American history, who did things that no athlete has done before or since, the trifecta of being the first an all-american football player the first great player in the national football league a major league baseball player and a gold medalist in the decathlon and pentathlon he was great at everything in it came to sports even ballroom dancing he was a hockey you player you can't forget ballroom <laughs> dancing <laughs> no. but that's not why i wrote the book i wrote the book because i could use all of that drama of athletics to illuminate the native american experience through his life he was a sack and fox indian born in indian territory of what became oklahoma amazing and never really got that story never really came out in full. It never did. Well, you know, the whole story is a is a is a story of triumph and almost tragedy, but I don't consider it a tragedy. But he suffered a lot, and through his life, I could write about all of sort of what Native Americans endured, both the losing of land. You know, that Indian Territory was taken over by by white settlers during the Oklahoma land run. They took it away from them. Then he went to the boarding schools, the Indian boarding schools in Oklahoma. Which were really essentially encampments. Oh, they were forced assimilation yeah. encampments is yeah. what they were. And he went to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, which was the flagship of those places where hundreds of students died while they were there over the years. The most haunting place I visited in this during the research for this book, Peter, was at what is now the Army War College, which was that same place, the Indian school. And there's an Indian student cemetery there still. A hundred Are the plus, graves marked? 
the graves are marked, but they're often misspelled, and they, the kids don't belong there. They belong back in their home territories. And only in the last 10 years has the Army allowed the, the uh, native tribes, the Oneida to, here in Wisconsin, to, to the Lakota Sioux, to move them back to their homelands. Amazing. And that's where Jim Thorpe went to school and rose to stardom. And where is Jim Thorpe buried? Jim Thorpe, it's an incredible story. He's buried in a place where he never set foot in his entire life, a place called now called Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, which once was the twin coal towns of Mock Chunk and East Mock Chunk. Thorpe wanted to be buried in Oklahoma. But that's it, where he's from. That's where he's from. But his third wife was unhappy with how Oklahoma was going to build a mausoleum. So she essentially put him up to the highest bidder and persuaded these two towns in Oklahoma that if they changed their name and to Jim Thorpe, they could have his body. So there's a mausoleum up there. That's where Jim Thorpe's bones are, a place that he never set foot in his life. And the enduring message you want from this book? It's one of perseverance, actually. You know, I mean, Jim Thorpe, after his athletic days were over, uh, lived in 20 different states, had all kinds of jobs, ranging from bit parts in Hollywood, he was in more than 70 Hollywood movies, to being a bouncer in bars, struggling with alcoholism. Uh, he had seven children and three wives, and, and he kept looking for equilibrium that he couldn't find. And at one point, I was, you know, as I was writing the last five chapters of the book, I kept saying, something better's got to happen to him. But I knew it wasn't going to. He died of a heart attack at age 65 in Lomita, California, in a trailer park. But then I thought about, why did I write the book? And there's a, uh, a point in the book where I write about the most famous statue in America in 1915. It was called The End of the Trail. And it depicted an Indian on horseback. The horse slumped. The Indian slumped. And the notion was that it was all over. It was the end of the race. Manifest destiny prevailed. Indians would soon be gone. There were fewer than 300,000 Native Americans left in this country then. But it didn't happen. They did persevere. They found a way to survive for all of the troubles that they've endured um, you know, on the reservations. And there are now a few million Native Americans in this country again. And Jim Thorpe became the symbol for all of them about perseverance. And that really what what's the story's about. And of course, for, for guys like you or me, we have to celebrate our perseverance. Because here we are back at Madison, Wisconsin. We survived. I guess we did. <laughs> yeah, old Two old codgers right back in our, our homeland. Yeah. Before I run out of time, I want to talk about Vince Lombardi for a second. Because yeah. you can't say Wisconsin without saying Vince Lombardi. You certainly can't. No, and... And he, you know, Peter, you grew up in New York, but he was the assistant coach for the New York Giants first. Uh, they had the two greatest assistant coaches in NFL history, Tom Landry on offense, I mean defense, and Vince Lombardi on offense. But then he moved out to Green Bay, a place he'd never, he'd visited once before in his life when he was on a recruiting mission for West Point. And he said, how, how would anybody ever live in this godforsaken place? <laughs> he ended up there. Uh, had nine years of true brilliance, five championships, um, and became sort of the symbol of the NFL. My thanks to David. What I'm about to say may be an understatement. In fact, it is an understatement. Pete Souza was without a doubt a witness to history, and his photos tell that history. As the White House photographer to two presidents, he's also authored a number of books about his experiences, and of course, how he got those incredible shots.
This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Pete, welcome. Thanks for having me, Peter. I mean, I, th- I like to think I traveled the world. I know you traveled the world because wherever the president went, you went. I mean, did you ever count up how many countries? Uh, I, lost, I lost count, I think, at 75. Uh, and you were did, always hitting the ground running. Always hitting the ground running. Uh, I think it was uh, almost 1.5 million miles. For which you got no mileage. <laughs> on Air Force One, just during the Obama administration. You know, I also, as you know, served as official White House photographer during Reagan. Well, that's so, where you and I first met. Right. And uh, I never kept tally of the number of miles on uh, Air Force One then. But so I've got a few miles on that plane. Yes, you do. And of course, speaking of Air Force One, I flew on the old Air Force One, which is the 707 that Reagan flew on, which is now permanently on exhibit at the Reagan Library in California. And every time I go back there, I'm reminded of how small that plane was. It's pretty small. Especially when you compare it to the new one, the 747. When you first walked on the new 747. Well, the first time I walked on the new 747 was actually President Bush, who was then president, sent the plane out to California to transport uh, President Reagan's uh, casket when he died in 2004 back to D.C. And I was the official photographer for the funeral. So the first time that I walked on that plane... Uh, was with with uh, Nancy Reagan and President Reagan's casket, which uh, I, so it was very uh, I was very overwhelmed at the the size of that plane. In, indeed, and you know it's interesting. I I talked to Colin Powell once, and and also a very similar quote from George H. W. Bush when they asked him what's the one thing they missed most about Washington. They said Air Force One. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I asked President Obama that, and he told me he actually misses the helicopter. Because uh, now he's stuck in traffic a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Very practical answer. But you know what? When you're on Air Force One, all other air traffic stops. Well, that's true. You don't just push back from the gate. You just get on the plane as it's almost moving. Yeah. Right? It just takes off and goes. When you think about all the places you've been, when you think about all the photos that you've shot, is there one particular image that resonates with you? One particular destination? Here's the thing. When you, tra- <laughs> when you travel with the president, uh, especially with President Obama, you end up not getting to know the places you go. 
I mean, I've been to Australia twice with him, and I think we spent one night there. So you don't ever really get to know the country. Yes, there were occasional times when we got to see some really cool things, like he tried to do a culture stop whenever he could. So I got to go to the pyramids, Stonehenge, the Great Wall, things like that. I think probably one of the highlights was we got to go inside the pyramids and walk up this rickety little staircase to the top inside. That was pretty cool. I got a chance to do that with probably the same guy you did, Zahi Hawass, who was the supreme Egyptologist. He took me I'm inside sure it the, was the same guy. Same guy. And he, and he took me inside the Sphinx, which is even crazier. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you got a chance to do that. Yeah. One of the pictures that you took, I mean, you know, when you think White House photographer, you're thinking the, the most sophisticated gear. You've got every piece of equipment you can imagine. But you took an official portrait with an iPhone. No, it wasn't with an iPhone. It was with a digital, it was with a DSLR. Oh, okay. Fine. Yeah, yeah. But that was the first one. That ever. was the first, yeah. uh, first digital photograph, uh, official portrait of a president. Exactly. And actually, I had to borrow a camera from a friend of mine because uh, at that time, the White House, they, they didn't have the latest equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so I borrowed the latest, you know, DSLR, uh, Canon 5D Mark II from a, a friend of mine and used his camera for that photograph. By the way, you have a number of books out, one of which, of course, is one of my favorite books, The West Wing and Beyond. Your experience is, of course, inside the presidency. And there are two photographs in that book that resonate with me. One goes back to, uh, and I was actually in Washington when it happened, but nobody knew it was going to happen. I was there at the White House Correspondents' Dinner on April 30th, 2011, uh, where Obama was the headliner. And then he left that event at the Hilton and just didn't go to bed that night. That's the night they got Osama bin Laden. And that picture that you took inside the Situation Room was unbelievable. Yeah, it, it was actually the next, the next day. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it was, um, uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, a very tense day. And I like to tell people that when they look at that photograph, think about this. You've got essentially all the most powerful people in the executive branch of our government. In one room. In one room. You've got the president, vice president, chief of staff, national security advisor, secretary, secretary of State. defense, secretary of state. And yet, during the 40 minutes of that raid, they're powerless. There's nothing they can do. To, to affect the outcome of what they're watching. It's totally up to those guys, those special forces guys on the ground. And I think that accounted for the, the tension and anxiety that you see in their faces in that photograph. Well, if it's, if it's the photograph I remember in that book, it's the photograph with Hillary Clinton I'll be cupping, yeah. her, cupping her mouth. Yeah. 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 It was, you, you, caught, you caught the moment. Yeah. Then the other photograph, which just gave us joy, was the young... African-American child in the Oval Office comparing hairstyles. Yeah, so that was uh, five-year-old Jacob Philadelphia. A black, what, a great, young, what a great name. Young black kid. Uh, his dad worked for the National Security Council and um, was, was being sent to a foreign post. He worked for the State Department, I think. Um, and as a courtesy, President Obama invited the family in to do you know, a, a grip and grin, a photo just standing in front of the desk, and this five-year-old kid has the audacity to say to the president, my friends tell me 
that my haircut is just like yours. You know, and with that, President Obama bent over and said, go ahead and touch it. And I caught that moment of Jacob touching his head. And it became a picture that I think symbolized, you know, you've got this five-year-old African-American kid touching the head of the President of the United States that looks like him. Uh, and I think it, it, it really resonated with uh, young kids of color. Now, given your access, which is unique and extraordinary, to two American presidents, what's the photo that got away from you? Well, hopefully there wasn't any. Well, come on. There had to be one. Uh, no, I mean, look, my style of photography, the way I approach things, was trying to capture the moment. And to be invisible in the room. And to be invisible in the room. And you're always trying to compose it right, get the moment. Um, if you look at that Jacob Philadelphia photograph, it's actually not the best composure in the world. It's not the best framing. But I got the moment. So sometimes it's not quite perfect. Um, but, you know, that's just the way it is when you're capturing fleeting moments. Sometimes you get it just right. Sometimes maybe it's a little off. Of course, presidents have their favorite photographs as yep. well. What was Reagan's favorite photograph that you took? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I think he came to like... Uh, I don't, this is a photograph that I know he didn't like at first, and then he came to like it. And, it, and it's a picture that I made uh, in L.A. Uh, he was having a meeting with one of his speechwriters... I walked into with the speechwriter. Reagan was sit, sitting in the living room area of his hotel room, folding a piece of White House stationery like this into the shape of a paper airplane. Finished making his airplane, went out to the balcony and let it rip off the balcony. And I got a picture of that. So eventually the, the picture is published in U.S. News and World Report. And Reagan is not liking that. This picture, he, he thought it made fun of him. And I was, you know, I said to him, I think it shows you that there's a, l a little kid in all of us. Um, many years later, after he left office, uh, I went to see him in, at his office in L.A. And, um, Avenue of the Stars. Avenue of the Stars, Century City. And uh, uh, I walked into his office, and there, there behind his desk on a shelf was a picture of Queen, him with Queen Elizabeth, and next to it was this picture of him throwing the paper airplane. There was confirmation right there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, my favorite picture you took was of me with the Reagans <laughs> of course. at the ranch in Santa Barbara. Of course. Of course, of course. Had to be, right? Yeah. But um, those, are, those, are, you know, those days in Santa Barbara when the Reagans would come out, there was always a festive mood there. It was, I think, because he got to spend two or three weeks at the ranch, Riding his horse. And, and let's face it, Pete, the press corps loved that, too. Oh, the press corps loved that, too, yeah. Because they could, they could quote a relax as well. Yeah. Amazing. Was, I think that was Dirk Halstead's favorite time of the year. Dirk Halstead, may he rest in peace, one of the great photographers for Time Magazine, who traveled the world with me as well, and uh, very good friends with another friend of our show, David Ketterly, the former White House photographer for, for Jerry Ford. So I have to ask the question. Here we are in Madison, Wisconsin, one of my favorite cities in the world because... I went to school here. I love it. I always have to come back. What are you doing in Madison, Wisconsin? <laughs> well, af after um, um, my, my daughter was doing her residency at UW here in internal medicine, 
Uh, and, um, you know, my wife would visit her, you know, every few months. Um, and then when she retired from teaching, she said to me, I want to move to Madison. And I said, okay, let's do it. So that's how it happened. Are you happy to be here? Yeah, except, except during the winter. <laughs> Win- winters are brutal. Listen, I, I remember once living here when it was minus 22 degrees and the heaters didn't work in the house. I used to have to plug the car in. I had to plug my radiator into an electrical <laughs> socket so it wouldn't crack the block. And from that moment on, I never get cold anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah, it, does, it can get pretty cold here. But let's face it. It's a beautiful city surrounded by four lakes. It's the capital. It's the university. There's a great energy here, a great restaurant scene. Um, and there's a guy here named Pete Souza who, uh, who's got a book out called The West Wing and Beyond, also Shade, and one more. Obama and Intimate Portrait. Yeah. All great photographs, all capturing special moments in American history. Um, was it different working with, each, with, with the presidents? Because Reagan, of course, came from an acting background. He understood cameras. He understood where his mark was. He understood teleprompters. Was that, did that make your job easier or harder? But the, the big difference really was that um, when I was hired uh, in the middle of Reagan's first term to be an official White House photographer, Michael Evans was the chief photographer. So I didn't have uh, blanket access the way Michael did. During the second term, Michael had left and my access improved. Fast forward 20 years, um, I had known Barack Obama for four years before he became president. Because you and I have something else in common. We, I started my newspaper career at the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. My column ran every Sunday, and right. that's where you were. So I'm working at the Chicago Tribune based in D.C. Barack Obama gets elected to the Senate. We uh, figure out how to document his first year in, in the Senate. So I got access to him that nobody else got. Struck up a professional relationship with him. He got to see the way I worked. Uh, so when he's elected president, he asked me to become his chief photographer. I'm now what I consider a, you know, a seasoned photojournalist. And Plus you'd worked in the White House before. Worked in the White House before, confident about doing this job. And I said to him, the, under one condition, I'll take this job. You have to give me total access. And he got it. He got the importance of having somebody visually document his presidency for history. So it's safe to say that other than Secret Service, you were in the room all the time. No, I was in the room way more than Secret Service. I mean, they were not in the room in the old They were outside the room. They are outside the room. I'm in the room. (laughs) I got it. Yeah. (laughs) But again, there are some photographs that will never be seen. Not true. They'll all be seen. Really? Eventually, yeah. There's a process. So so right now we're at the five-year process post-presidency where you can FOIA you know, any photograph. And then um, there, there comes a time, I don't even know if it's 10 years or 15 years, when all photographs will be made public. So if you were to go to the Reagan Library website right now, you could see every single picture that I ever shot during the Reagan administration. The so, proof sheets are online. So basically, it's the most important moments in history, and it's also the president picking his nose. Yes. <laughs> I mean, when you think about Literally. it. Literally. Yeah, yeah. What, whatever I... So the way it works with the White House photographs is... And by the way, FOIA means Freedom of Freedom Information, Information Act. Act request. So the Presidential Records Act, which was a law Congress came up with after Watergate, um, every photograph 
uh, is covered on the Presidential Records Act. So every photograph that I made was transferred to the National Archives. You know I'm going to that website now. <laughs> yeah, go to that website. I got to check it out. You did another book called Shade, where you compared the styles and, and the access, if you will, to both Obama and President Trump. Here you were, the as, as the White House photographer, you were always in the room, as you just said earlier. There was another White House photographer that, that followed you in the in the Trump administration. But the one thing you had without that access, you had those special moments. You had that access. You had the opportunity to see moods, to see those moments. That didn't quite happen in Trump, did it? It, it, it didn't, and I think that's unfortunate for history. There are no photographs of Trump on 1-6 behind the scenes. Zero, not a one. And the White House photographer, I'm not... Uh, I have no dispute with her because, you know, you can only... You serve at the pleasure of the president. Exactly. But she, because she she asked to to go into the dining room when he was watching the insurrection on TV and was denied access. And I know this because she was uh, subpoenaed by the January 6th committee and uh, testified. And that her testimony is public record. I read, read her testimony. And I felt sorry for her, really, in, in the sense that she was not able to, you know, truly document that, that presidency for You history. know, when you think about White House press photographers uh, for presidents, um, going back to JFK and the, miss- the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, LBJ in Vietnam, Civil Rights Movement, those, those presidential photographers caught those moments. They caught those moments of pain and anguish and, and contemplation and, and frustration and decision-making. Well, I, I, I would take uh, exception with one part of what you said. So um, I, I think it really began under LBJ. Uh, LBJ hired this guy, Yoshi Okamoto. Um, amazing photographer. Amazing photographer and had total access. You know, actually during Kennedy... And you know, because Johnson had a sense of history. Yeah. He really understood his sense of history. Um, uh, under Kennedy, there's actually uh, no photographs inside the room during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The only photograph is uh, Cecil Stoughton, who is the, the, the White House photographer, military photographer, was called in once the crisis had ended. Because there's that one shot of him with Bobby in the room. I remember that. Yeah. That must have been that. It, it must have been that, yeah. Wow. So it started, but then there's Nixon. Well, with Nixon, Nixon did have a chief photographer, Ollie Atkins, but his access was not very good. And matter of fact, ironically, the 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 most telling photographs that Ollie made were uh, on on Nixon's last day, where he got to go up into the residence and had family pictures and had Nixon with, with, with hugging hugging yeah. Trisha and, and Julie. Right. Yeah. Speaking but of, but Kennerly's of, got that video. You know the video I'm talking about. Where We're talking about David Kennerly. David Kennerly, where he was the White uh, House it's, it's photographer. A, it's a public video. He was the presidential photographer for Gerald Ford. For Ford, um, but he does this presentation where he shows this video, where Nixon's about to announce that he's resigning, and Ollie, of course, is in the room, and Nixon kicks him out, and and is caught on video, telling Ollie, "Get out of here," you know. Wow. Amazing. But, you know, we talk about bringing humanity to the White House. When Kennerly was the White House presidential photographer for Ford, that's when you really saw the presidential family. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, uh, my goal during the Obama administration was to uh, equal the bar that Okamoto set and, uh, you know, that Kennerly continued. And did you? 
Oh, that's for other people to judge. <laughs> okay, I'll judge. You did. You did. I mean, and, and you'll see that in, in all of your books. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, you want to see about American history from behind closed doors, uh, from inside the limo, inside the helicopter, inside Air Force One, inside the rooms where the decisions were made. That's the book you want to get. Pete Souza, the author of The West Wing and Beyond. Now that we have Biden as president, uh, how is that working out with that presidential photographer? Adam Schultz is uh, Biden's photographer. I think he's doing a good job. I mean, I, I don't think we're seeing uh, all the behind-the-scenes photos publicly, which, you know, that's basically up to the press office communication shop on what gets made public. I had the good fortune to uh, photograph alongside Adam when um, President Obama's uh, official White House portrait painting was revealed was unveiled yeah. at, the, at the White House and saw some of Adam's work hanging on the walls of the ground floor of the West Wing and I you know I from from those pictures I think he's doing a great job well thank you so much for being on the show thank you for the books thank you for being the recorder of history that you have we really appreciate it thanks and thanks, thanks for, for being me. in Madison oh yeah <laughs> even in the winter even in the winter uh, yeah I'll just stay inside and keep warm <laughs> And I won't need my car uh, generator to keep me warm. My thanks to Pete. I spent five years as an undergrad in Madison, and that extra year was due to a big chunk of relatively recent American history. Madison is the most active and often violent anti-war campuses in America, a story I covered. But there's more than just that history of Wisconsin to tell and share for Christian Overland, the CEO of the Wisconsin Historical Society. Christian Overland, nice to see you again, sir. Great to see you, Peter. Wonderful to be here. You know, I tell friends of mine who've never been to Wisconsin that it's not just a flyover state. I tell them it's not just America's dairy land. I tell them there are, and I'm probably low in this number, at least 11 sovereign Indian nations hanging out out here. 11 registered. There's one more that's trying to get registered as far as recognition with the All right, BIA. so I was pretty good on the number yeah, then. Yeah, 11, okay. 11 recognized, yes. Right. And, of course, Madison being sort of a, a the central focal point of so much history happening over a couple of hundred years. That's correct. And actually going back thousands of years in Madison. So uh, last year we pulled up a canoe that's uh, from 1100 BC in Lake Mendota. Come on. Yeah. Now Madison is surrounded by four lakes, Lake Mendota being the largest. And uh, of course, it, those lakes distinguish Madison because it makes it so beautiful. But 1100 BC? 1100 BC. So this is the second year. Can I ask something really stupid? Yeah. How do you know it was 1100 BC? Well, we worked with the Ho-Chunk Nation and our archaeology unit to recover these canoes. They were found actually a couple of years ago. The first one we found was from the year 800. How you date them is by carbon dating. Of course, okay. And that's, you know, when something stops to live or, you know, it, like a tree's cut down, that's how you do it this time. Although, you know, it's you interesting can date about, it to that year. about either the salinity or the acidity of the lake itself because uh, I remember that when they when they raised the Wassa in, in Stockholm, a, a ship that had capsized and sank on its maiden voyage, the clarity of the water... And the, and the cleanliness of the water was so pure that the ship had been completely preserved for 300 years. But they also had a, a challenge. They knew that if they raised the ship, it would oxidize and disintegrate immediately. That's exactly the issue that so we So what have. they did in Sweden is they built the museum before they raised the ship, and they raised the ship into the museum with all the oxidizers and all the humidifiers, and it's still there today. It's amazing. And that's what you had to do here. That's what we had to do here. We actually uh, recovered the canoes, and we have a large water tank at our storage facility here in Madison where we have the collections. And it's going to be in water for the next three years while we 
slowly rotate polyethyl glycol through it. It's exactly what they did in Sweden. Yeah, and it's going to take three years, and then it's going to be uh, debuted in the new history center in 2026 that we're building. Now, how big were these canoes? They're amazing. They're 15 feet long. It's like a canoe of today. The only difference is that they don't not as depth as far as the sidewalls. You can fit two men or two humans in them and also carry rocks, fishing weights for fishing nets, which we recovered too, by the way. Now, in your collection, you have everything there from the canoes to a motorcycle from the former governor? That's right. How, uh, how, that, how does that qualify? Tommy Thompson, uh, governor, longest running governor um, and in, in office governor for the state of Wisconsin, donated his 2001 Harley Davidson. Of course, Harley Davidson based in Milwaukee. Right. It's iconic, right? Yeah. It's an American company that's known throughout the world, but it's from Wisconsin and Milwaukee. He had ridden that uh, cycle since 2012. He's been on Harleys all through his governorship. Also, when he was secretary of Department of Health Services down in Washington, D.C., he's been on many Harley rides with it to Sturgis and back. He actually actually drove it to the storage He goes facility. to Sturgis? Yep, he did. And he, he drove it to actually our storage unit and delivered it personally with an escort of 25 other Harley riders and the Capitol Police delivering it. Nice. Nice. It was, he's a great person. It's a great story to tell. And the connection with the Ringling Brothers? The Ringling Brothers, a wonderful connection. We actually have... Because that's Baraboo, Wisconsin, isn't Baraboo, it? Baraboo, Wisconsin. We have something called the Circus World Museum. Do you We've know been, what I remember about Baraboo, Wisconsin? What's that? The munitions plant. Right, Badger Munitions. Badger right? Munitions. For those people who remember the Vietnam War, Badger Munitions was making all a lot of the bombs that were being used in Southeast Asia. And it, it marked the first time in American history that an American munitions plant was bombed from the air because anti-war protesters from Madison, two of whom, by the way, I knew, wow. but didn't know at the time, stole an airplane, took the right door off of it, they were called the New Year's Gang. Mm -hmm. And on December 31st, they threw these uh, incendiary devices, wow, okay. which missed the building by about a foot and ended in the snow. And then they called the student newspaper where I was working and took credit for it, but nothing had been announced. So we called the Barabee Munitions Plant. And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. And then they went outside. Oh, there it is. And it actually had happened. Oh. Crazy stuff. That is crazy. I know. The but Badger Plant's not there anymore. I know. But Baraboo is also the home of, of Ringling Brothers. The home of Ringling Brothers. And we actually have... You said the circus train go through there. The, exactly. We have the home of the Ringling Brothers where they actually have their beginnings of their circus, their winter quarters, the elephant house, uh, the trapeze house, the clothing houses. If you think about Colonial Wims Williamsburg being a one-place, one-time museum in the East Coast, this is a place where the circus lived for 40 years. And it's now open to the public. It's been open to the public since 1961. I'm old enough to remember the circus train. And I will tell you that when the circus train came into town, boy, did it smell. Yeah. Because few of animals, the, huh? Oh, the animals. Yeah, just a few animals. <laughs> oh, my God. It's true. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And then when you think about you as a repository, it's not just one building, is it? No. So... Um, the, the Wisconsin Historical Society actually has 240 rooftops around the state of Wisconsin that are all museum or historic site related. Uh, let's say, for instance, inside Baraboo, the Ringling Brothers uh, home, we have 35 there. We have the Outdoor History Museum, also Old World Wisconsin, where we have 80 structures that are moved all around Wisconsin. It's the largest rural outdoor museum in the entire world. And then, of course, we have the large-scale uh, so societies preservation unit that houses the major collection down here in Madison. 
11 historic sites as well. Amazing. Amazing stuff. And then, you know, there's Cape of the Mounds. Cape of the Mounds, it's brilliant, right? Uh, down, down the road, south of Mount Horeb or west of Mount Horeb. That's a wonderful place. It's not our site, but it's a great partner of ours, one of our affiliates. And it's a place where people can actually go and experience the geology of the past. And if they get to Mount Horeb, they go to the Mount Horeb Historical Society and experience the Driftless region, too, at the Driftless Historium. Explain the Driftless region. The Driftless region for everybody, it's, it's a place in the United States and in Wisconsin where the glaciers did not cover. So it went around the Driftless region, not touched by glaciers, the Ho-Chunk had lived in that area through the glaciers, and it's a place today that's been untouched, but it's also a rich soil uh, for farming. That's where Organic Valley was born as far as farming. And today it's a wonderful rolling hillside where tourists come and enjoy from all over the world. You know, part of Wisconsin history, it's not just dairy land the way people think it's just cheese. It's farming. And, and of course, I remember when I first came to Madison, Wisconsin, you landed at the Dane County Airport, and you could smell it. It was Oscar Mayer. That's right. right? And uh, the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Uh, yeah, well, Oscar Mayer was right next to the airport, and we have the 1969 Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. I was going to ask you about that. It's designed by Brooks Stevens, who actually designed the Excalibur car. And this is the first Wienermobile to travel across the world. Well, hold on, let me see. He, that's, that's quite a range of design. Oh, yeah. He designed the Excalibur. Yep. And, and the Wienermobile. And the Milwaukee Railroad, you know, ultra, ultra liner too. I mean, he was an amazing industrial designer. But the Wienermobile, it was a design that went around the world. It was Oscar Mayer's attempt and it's still um, selling across the world as an international company. So for us, it's like Wisconsin identity in a world culture. Can you still sing the song? I, I wish it was an Oscar Mayer Wiener. Okay, got it. Just double, <laughs> just double checking. Where is, that, where is the Wienermobile? The Wienermobile right now is our state archive preservation facility. It's getting ready for the new history center that's opening up at 26. Will you ever take it out? Oh, we've taken it out a couple of times. What's cool about it is uh, people are going to be able to sit in it and get their picture. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. A Wienermobile picture. That's right. Family photograph for Christmas or the holidays. Wow. But I have to remember the entire lyrics to that song. Because if I were an Oscar, Oscar Mayer wiener, wiener, everybody would want a piece of me. me. Yeah, okay, fine. Okay. You and if I was an Oscar Mayer Stop wiener, <laughs> everybody would be truly in love with me. Of all the, uh, I mean, I, I, we can't even, we have no not enough time to talk about all of your collection. But if there was one item in there that you would say would surprise people the most, what would it be? Oh, that's a hard question for me to answer. There's so many. But uh, let me give you one that connects people around the United yeah. States. Thomas Edison's original dynamo that powered the first incandescent light from New Jersey. This is the beginning of electrification, what has brought us out of darkness and into light. And how powerful it is, is it uh, was given to us by the University of Wisconsin when Edison was down in for the century um, or the exposition fair in the 19th century in Chicago, demonstrating electricity in the 1890s. This is the piece of the true cross of American technology history. And it's here in Wisconsin. And it lit it up. And it lit it up. And the next thing that happened after that, and one of the reasons why we have it, the first hydropower electrical plant happened in Appleton in the world. And that's the connection. Now, you're building here in Madison? 
accessible to the public? Oh yeah, we've had we have a headquarters building that's built in 1901. You can actually see uh, everything from a uh, let's see a Bible from the beginning of actually statehood to the world's oldest map of North America on it, uh, Lewis and Clark journals, and also Abraham Lincoln shawl. All of that's accessible. What people don't know is you can walk in that building every day that it's open, sit down, read a book, or order from our archives and look at history from across the world. My thanks to Christian, to Pete Souza, and to Dave Marinus. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know exactly what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis-Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.